Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. Thank you, Michael and Nancy, for this uh, wonderful, gracious hospitality. We're really grateful. I also want to thank Kathy Weiss and Michael Gropper for making this happen, and of course the leadership of Carrie Davidson, the chair of our Board of Overseers, without whom none of this happens, and all of you for joining us tonight. Before I introduce Michael Marmer, I want to introduce the event. Some of you know that the Jack H. Scopal campus runs a digital platform for synagogue learning called the College Commons. The College Commons has a number of programs running. One of them is a podcast called the Bully Pulpit Podcast. And tonight, we are piloting the Bully Pulpit Podcast on the road. So this, <laughs> this uh, little mic right here is actually live. You will be able to ask questions, and we're uh, really glad that you're going to be a part of it. So without further business ado, I'd like to introduce my friend and colleague, the provost of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, Michael Marmer. Rabbi Michael Marmer is a scholar of Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he recently published, less than a year ago it came out, I think, Abraham Joshua Heschel and the Sources of Wonder. Uh, He's a wonderful teacher, as we're about to learn, and really one of the leading intellectual forces at the Union College, my friend and colleague and provost, Michael Moore. Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much to our hosts for opening up their home. My job in the next little while is to introduce to you the life and something of the work and thought of one of the most interesting, influential, complicated, multifaceted Jews of the 20th century. And we're going to focus for the time that we have. I should, by the way, tell you that uh, Rachel asked me to stand still for at least five seconds, which is very, very difficult for me to do, because uh, part of this is being, here we go, it's Facebook Live. This is not going to go viral. I want to make that clear. (laughs) We're actually aiming for a heavy cold, as opposed to full-out viral sensation. But in any case, this is the last standing still I'm going to be capable of uh, uh, for this evening. Uh, It's going to bring the internet to a standstill. You know, (laughs) people are just all over, you know, China and just waiting to hear about Abraham Joshua Heschel. Particularly what we're going to do in the next little while is without trying to draw two crass parallels between the way that Heschel lived his life and responded to the things that were happening during his lifetime, there will be parallels that might emerge, okay? And it'll be our job to think about the life and the thought of this man. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to tell you very briefly about his life. Some of you will know something about this, and if you want to nod off for the next four or five minutes, I could not blame you. But in any case, let's do it this way. It's 1907. We are in Warsaw, or as they say in the United States, Warsaw, Poland, as opposed to Warsaw, Alabama, or some other such place. We're in Warsaw, Poland. Abraham Joshua Heschel is born to a family that could uh, justifiably be described as aristocrats, not because they're, they're not high, 
yield, income. That's not at all the, the kind of aristocracy that I'm talking about. But Heschel, both on his mother's and on his father's side, was descended from some of the greatest figures of the Hasidic movement. Hasidism, a pietistic movement that grows up in the Ukraine, in Poland, in Russia from the late 18th century. Heschel is a direct heir of some of the giants of that movement. But he's not born in some uh, distant a shtetl somewhere, a little uh, uh, village. He's actually born in the city of Warsaw, which is actually a highly cosmopolitan place, both in Jewish terms, where there, you have to imagine that there are ultra-Orthodox Jews, there are Zionists, there are socialists. All of the major movements of the European Jewish consciousness are, are uh, there's a fulcrum of ideas that's taking place. And of course, it's not an exclusively Jewish place. Uh, Heschel has, uh, tells us later that he recalls as as a young child, he would hear the bells of the churches. He was aware that just beyond his particular enclosed life, the other, the Christian other in this case, was there, close and yet somehow very distant. The year is 1917. Heschel is 10 years old. This is not a mathematics test. That's a crucial year for him. Uh, you may know that amongst the disasters taking place in Europe during this period, it's not only the millions who are culled through the First World War, there's also a huge epidemic taking place, sometimes known as the Spanish flu. One of its victims was Heschel's father. Heschel's father was himself a Hasidic Rebbe with a very small coterie around him and had been a very influential figure in his life. He dies, and this perhaps is a trigger for what happens next, because through his early teen years, Heschel becomes increasingly dissatisfied with living within this very, very intense and very enclosed Jewish milieu. We know about him as a young kid that he is brilliant. He has prodigious knowledge. It's difficult for us to grasp what it means to have the kind of um, grasp of Jewish sources that people such as Heschel had. I'm not exaggerating or talking him up. I'm not presenting him as a saint or some kind of a magician. But I just want to make it clear. The major sources of Jewish tradition were simply known. To, were, he just knew them. So the Bible, the rabbinic literature, the Talmud, most of the great medieval figures, he'd learned them as a child. He had prodigious skills of memory. And he wasn't, by the way, unique in any sense in this regard. There was a whole elite of students of uh, classical Jewish sources who had this kind of mental capacity and could simply bring these sources to bear that one of the great differences between Heschel and many of those other people is what he was eventually to do with these sources. The year is 1927. How old is Heschel? 15. <laughs> no, uh, that, was, that was Josh. As an administrator at the Hebrew Union College, he always takes a few percent off. <laughs> it's 1927. The 20-year-old Heschel has indeed stepped out of his enclosed, intense, ultra-Orthodox environment. He's left Warsaw with the permission of his uh, mother and his uh, uncle, who was another uh, famous Hasidic Rebbe of the, of the Polish Jewish community, known as the Novominska Rebbe. Heschel has moved to Vilna, 
we call it Vilnius in Lithuania these days, where he enrolls in a school to give him a secular education to parallel, to match in some sense, his very profound Jewish education. And that's where he learns Latin and Greek and, tries to, and gets a grasp of scientific knowledge and so on and so forth. He also becomes, during this period, part of a group of poets, the Yiddish poets. Uh, they were known as Jung Vilna. From that city, he makes his way in this year as a 20-year-old man a young man, to the capital of European culture between the wars, to Berlin. The year is 1937. The 30-year-old Abraham Joshua Heschel is one of the emerging young intellectual and spiritual figures offering support and succor to the Jewish community under Nazi rule. Heschel, in the course of his years, had enrolled at the university in Berlin, writes a dissertation on the biblical prophecy. In those days in Berlin, there were two great rabbinical seminaries, an orthodox one known as the Hildesheimer Seminary and a, a, a form or a liberal one known as the Hochschule für das Wissenschaft, das Judentums, uh, an appropriately scientific title. This is where the science of Judaism was taught. Interestingly, Heschel chose to go to the liberal institution, not because he was, in terms of his personal practice, a reformed Jew. Throughout his life, Heschel was what you might call orthoprax. He was a practicing traditional Jew, but it would appear that there wasn't much for him to learn at the Hildesheimer Seminary. On the other hand, he wanted to learn the techniques, the approaches, uh, and the wisdom on offer in this liberal seminary. Heschel, later in life, was asked if he considered himself to be an Orthodox Jew, a conservative Jew, or a reformed Jew. And he bristled somewhat at the question and replied, I do not regard myself as a noun in search of an adjective. <laughs> the year is 1947. Heschel, in line with Nazi policy in, the, in that, that era, is repatriated in 1938 to Poland, spends some time there, and then comes out from uh, Nazi occupation thanks to the Hebrew Union College. The president of our college at that time, Julian Morgenstern, ran a project called the Refugee Scholars Project, which identified some of the greatest figures of intellectual Jewish life in occupied Europe and made strenuous efforts to bring those people out. Heschel is one of them. He comes to London initially and spends a year in northwest London where his brother had already arrived and there is a London branch of the Heschel family. And after a year, he arrives in Cincinnati, Ohio. He spends five years or so there. It's not a very comfortable fit for him. And he gets an, uh, approached by the Jewish Theological Seminary, the conservative seminary in New York City. And in 1945, he moves there. And he stays in New York for the rest of his life. So we find him in 1947. It's post-war America. He's lost his mother and two of his sisters and the world which he knew. We find him making fledgling steps in the English language. He had a prodigious capacity for language. He wrote in four languages, in Yiddish, his mameloshen, his language from home, in Hebrew. He had an extremely beautiful 
high literary Hebrew in which he wrote, in German uh, and in English. We know in that year, in, uh, this is uh, post-war, he gives a very stirring evocation of the Jewish life that had been lost in Eastern Europe at YIVO, which is a center for uh, Yiddish culture in New York. And the story is told, and it's apparently may even be true, that these hardened secular uh, Yiddishists, after he gave his lecture, all spontaneously stood up and said the Kaddish. It's 1957. Heschel, by now, is in midlife. He's 50 years old. Where do we find him? He's still in New York. He is at the peak of an extraordinary phase of literary and theological productivity. He produces, in the course of the 1950s, books which, to this day, are read, considered, poured over, thought about, where within American Jewish circles, and also beyond the confines of the Jewish conversation. 1951, he writes a little book called The Sabbath, which if you only ever get to read one book by Heschel, that should probably be it, okay? It's short, it's beautiful, it's resonant, it's worth a try. He writes a book called Man is Not Alone, and another book called God in Search of Man. There's a lot of man in the titles of Heschel's books. He also writes during that period a book about prayer called Man's Quest for God. This business of man, by the way, becomes an issue later on. Heschel's only child, Professor Susanna Heschel, is one of the leading voices in Jewish feminism. It's also interesting to note that book, Man's Quest for God, was brought out a few years ago in a new edition. And because of this slight discomfort with the title, it's just called Quest for God. That's the new title. I think the next edition will just be called Quest. That's the... Uh... Now, Heschel in 1957 is a leading voice within the American Jewish conversation. The year is 1967. It's the 60s, baby. And things are really different in Heschel's life. In 1963, Heschel attends the first conference on religion and race in Chicago, where he makes the acquaintance and eventually forms a strong bond of friendship with Dr. Martin Luther King. From that moment, and already we know in the months that had preceded, Heschel becomes a leading voice in some of the major campaigns which had to define the 60s. Some of those issues are internal within the Jewish community. Heschel's one of the very earliest people, along with Elie Wiesel, in fact, to begin to raise consciousness about the plight of Soviet Jews before 1967, before everybody jumps on that bandwagon. Heschel becomes a favorite in the Kennedy White House and is invited to give a series of papers on issues like to the challenges for young people, of aging, of health policy. In those days, they had issues with health policy. Things are completely different, of course, uh, nowadays. The three great challenges socio-religious challenges that Heschel is involved with during this period are inter-religious dialogue. This is the period in which the Catholic Church is revising its approach to other religions. And Heschel is really the leading Jewish interlocutor, the leading Jewish voice in a conversation with the Catholic Church. Number two, 
he becomes an extremely central figure from within the Jewish community in the civil rights movement. And number three, and most controversially, Heschel is implacably opposed to US involvement in Vietnam. And he is one of the figures who draws Dr. King into uh, identifying strongly and taking a stand against Vietnam. And again, as is sometimes worth remembering, and I don't need to tell the people in this room, whilst uh, with the benefit of the 2020 hindsight, some of these issues seem very consensual and easy to get behind, in real time, Heschel's strident stances on these questions got him into a good deal of hot water. And we know of all sorts of complex, and uh, you know, the State Department tried to play, put pressure on folks within the Jewish community to keep him silent on some of the issues and said that, that it would play out badly for support for Israel. That all, it was a messy business all around. I'd like to tell you that the year is 1977 and tell you what Heschel is doing then. But it was actually at the age of 65 in 1972 that Abraham Joshua Heschel dies. The circumstances of his death uh, tell you something about his increasingly strident involvement in social issues towards the end of his life. Some of you may remember the name of the Berrigan brothers. The Berrigan brothers were very much involved from within the Catholic community in the anti-Vietnam movement. Dan Berrigan had recently been jailed. Heschel insisted on being one of the group that would meet him out of the jail when he was released early one winter morning. And that seemed to have done him in. He had a weak heart and he never recovered from the chill which he contracted. So this is the life story. I'm now going to test you. Where do we begin? No, I didn't say when. Please observe very carefully. That's Warsaw, Poland. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, Warsaw. From Warsaw, he makes his way out to Vilna. From Vilna to... Thank you so much. Then there's a little a detour in London. Everybody should have a detour in London. And he makes his way to Cincinnati and from there to New York. In the course of his life, Heschel writes about every major period of Jewish creativity. He writes important works about the Bible, about rabbinic literature, about many of the great figures of the Middle Ages. He writes about the Hasidic movement. He writes about prayer. He writes his own theological musings. And in this final phase of his life, he moves out from his study and onto the barricades. That's kind of the arc of his life. Now we're going to drill down on some of the things that he actually wrote, but I wonder if there are any questions, comments, thoughts before we move on. Please, Rhea. I wonder, how did the Jewish community look upon him as he became more and more involved with social action issues? Were they responsive? Were they critical? Or was it all of it? It turns out that the Jewish community is quite a complicated animal. <laughs> Again, it was very different in those days. It, it, one of the major distinctions here is a generational one. Heschel becomes extremely important for younger Jews looking for a different way to express themselves Jewishly. In the book, A God in Search of Man, that he writes in the mid-50s, he begins the book by saying, 
Religion likes to blame the march of secularism for its own problems. But the truth is, religion should blame itself. It's become insipid and dull and boring and monotonous. And who's reading this stuff? All the people, ironically, who are today in charge of all those Jewish institutions. Arnie Eisen, who's the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, writes in a memoir that he reads those words from the beginning of God in Search of Man and says to himself, my God, this man has been to my shul. <laughs> because Heschel, from his, within his Hasidic tradition, is not shy in calling out what he considers to be dull, insipid, inauthentic. And much of the established Jewish community of the time seems to be defending a very safe, very establishment. I'll, I'll give you one example. Heschel, throughout his time in America, wants to emphasize the centrality of the individual. Much of what is being peddled as a good, solid, healthy Judaism is downplaying the individual and emphasizing the role of the community. Our people has undergone a near-death experience. We have to mobilize. We have to be responsible. We need to, you know, pay our synagogue dues and make uh, sit on committees and all the... I shouldn't actually say anything bad about sitting on committees, but the... Uh, um, the point being, the point being, the emphasis, as he perceives it, is way over-exaggerated on the side of structure and on the side of the group. And he says, Judaism is a personal problem. We have to emphasize the role of the individual. In synagogue on Friday night, I quoted the verse from last week's uh, Torah portion, this is my God and I will worship him. The God of my father and I will praise him. Heschel taught this verse in the spirit of one of the great Hasidic masters, the Kotzke Rebbe, the Menachem Mendel of Kotzk, who taught it in the following way. Notice how the verse is constructed. It doesn't say, this is my father's God and then this is my God. It begins with my God begins with my personal quest. It doesn't end there, but it has to be focused there. And from then it can move out to a sense of solidarity, a sense of... He, uh, this is my attempt to answer your question, he resonated very strongly with a certain kind of assimilating, deracinated Jew who was looking for someone who exemplified fervor, passion, enthusiasm, intellectual integrity, somebody who was not just talking the talk, but who was walking the walk. Heschel walks the walk at Selma, Alabama, and is, is quoted famously as saying thereafter that he felt as though his legs were praying. That's walking the walk. And that had strong resonance for those people within the Jewish community who found the regular fare that was being offered to be somewhat tepid and unappetizing. Any other questions before I move on? Please, sir. I've heard from rabbis about the concept of God, and it's somewhat complicated. Can you talk about that? I know you mentioned God a lot in his books. Let's take a look at the first source. Maybe that's a way of responding to your question. The central concepts in Heschel's theological vocabulary is divine pathos. I need to say something about that. For the philosophers, for example, 
Aristotle and those who followed in his footsteps, any notion of God has to be an abstraction. God is sometimes described as the unmoved mover. God is the force that starts the clock ticking. Heschel rejected the notion of some completely passive, distant, unattainable God. Divine pathos is a dangerous idea theologically, but, but it implies there's a God who feels. By the way, why is that a problem? Why is that a dangerous idea? Because if God feels, you run the risk of turning God essentially into a person, right? And then you're just, you've taken a person, you call them God. Heschel was prepared to run that theological risk. He says, the God who I find when I read the sources of Judaism is a God who cries, is a God who goes into exile when the Jews go into exile. That's an idea you find in our mystical tradition. Who is the prophet? Who has got the prophetic voice? That person who has got a sympathy for this divine pathos. Let me try and say this differently in a less complicated way, perhaps. Most of us, speaking certainly for myself, only really have the capacity most of the time to think about our immediate needs. Okay, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm standing up, I'm sitting down, the microphone is working, all the rest of it. God, in Heschel's view, is not an, a personal interested party in that way. God is this ultimate emoting, feeling the pain of all of those around us. After all, even in a, in a neighborhood as delightful as this, if we were to go in a mile in every direction of where we are, if we really had the tools to, to the sensitivity, think how much pain and loss and suffering along with joy and satisfaction. And Think of all the sea of feelings that there are out there. Think of all the injustice that is right there under our nose. The prophet for Heschel has uh, some tools, some instruments, which sensitize him or her to feel that pain. Most of us, most of the time, have tools, have equipment to drown out all of that noise. We are incredibly sophisticated machines designed not to think too much about what's going on three millimeters beyond our immediate zone. God represents for Heschel this ultimate pathos, this ultimate sensitivity. And there are people around in the world who have it within them to emote with that, to empathize or sympathize with that. An example, for, in Heschel's view, would be a man like Dr. King, who we quite often refer to as a prophet in America. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning for adults and teens, including online courses, live video interviews, and enhanced podcast episodes with text and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to our podcast. Let's look at this first source. This is from a lecture that Heschel gave at Stanford. Heschel is playing in this passage with an idea, a philosophical statement made famous by René Descartes, 
who says, he said it both in French and in Latin, but we would translate it this way, I think, therefore I am. How do we know that something really exists? How do I know actually that I exist? If I'm, if I'm having this thought, that is proof okay, of existence. Heschel doesn't like that idea very much. Of one thing, however, I am sure. There is a challenge that I can never evade in moments of failure as in moments of achievement. Man is inescapably, essentially challenged on all levels of his existence. It is in his being challenged that he discovers himself as a human being. Do I exist as a human being? My answer is, I am commanded, therefore I am. What does it mean to be a person? To be a person means to be called, Heschel would say, by God, to act in the world, to respond to that which is going on around. God is that insistent tugging on your sleeve, calling you to acts of conscience, calling you to acts of response. How do I know that I'm alive? Not by examining my own entrails or thinking about my state of consciousness. I know that I really exist to the extent that I sense that call, that command to respond in the world. Now you might ask, respond how? Is it eating kosher soup or is it opening a soup kitchen? One of Heschel's great contributions to the Jewish conversation is that his answer is both. His answer is not just keep to the system of mitzvot and you'll be okay. But his answer is, add to that world of observance, if you like, the call to step up to some of the great political and social challenges of the day. So how do I know I exist? Not because I'm contemplating my own cogitation, but because I am acknowledging a call to act, to respond. There is a built-in sense of indebtedness in the consciousness of man, an awareness of owing gratitude, of being called upon at certain moments to reciprocate, to answer, to live in a way which is compatible with the grandeur and mystery of living. One more thing I'll say about God, and then we'll see how much more we do of this and before we have to uh, move to the next uh, phase of the evening. Most people, when they talk about God, construct a sentence where the subject of the sentence is me. In fact, most of us, most of the time, construct sentences in which, by some remarkable coincidence, <laughs> we are the subject of the sentence. I like this. I don't like this. Or, or to say something which one I know is very much part of the North American milieu, I am comfortable with this. I, I, come, from a, I come from a different world where being comfortable, we're always slightly suspicious of anything that's too comfortable. But the sentence begins with I, and then everything else follows. Heschel says, here's a really unsettling concept. Maybe we're not just subjects. Maybe we're also objects. God in search of man. Humanity is the object of this divine call, of this divine command. He's inverting this idea. He doesn't like the idea that it's all about me. I said before that he emphasizes the individual, and he does. But he doesn't want the individual to believe that he, I, you, are the 
be-all and end-all. He doesn't like the idea of the individual, I'm, this is my, I'm now doing dance drama for you, okay? I'm walking around holding the torch of reason and enlightenment, and that is lightening the way through the murky expanses beyond me. No, he says, maybe you should think of this in a different way. God is constantly knocking on your door, tugging on your sleeve, whispering in your ear. It's not all about me. It's about the degree to which I acknowledge that I'm being called. Okay, I know that time is uh, something of an issue, so we're going to do a, a couple more of these sources, with your permission. He gives a lecture in 1971 on dissent, right towards the end of his life. In there, he makes the following statement. Religious existence has two essential ingredients, faith and dissent. Faith involves acceptance, loyalty, assent. Dissent implies self-examination, critique, discontent. His problem with the organized religion is that it's all about one side of the equation. It's just you sign up to the deal, you accept the rules, and you're meant to go limp. He thinks that the, the Jewish tradition, the way he understands it, the way he reads it, is not only about obedience, it's also about the opposite of obedience. Right? Dissent is not a sign of weakness. Dissent is what a good Jew is meant to show. This is an excerpt from the speech he gave at that conference in 1963 in Chicago on religion and race. How can the two words be uttered together? To act in the spirit of religion is to unite what lies apart. To remember that humanity as a whole is God's beloved child. To act in the spirit of race is to sunder, to slash, to dismember the flesh of living humanity. Is this the way to honor a father, to torture his child? How can we hear the word race and feel no reproach? Racism is worse than idolatry. Racism is Satanism, unmitigated evil. Few of us seem to realize how insidious, how radical, how universal an evil racism is. Few of us realize that racism is man's gravest threat to man. The maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason. The maximum of cruelty for a minimum of of thinking. I'm going to skip the next passage about prophecy. He gives a talk in, in 1966 entitled, No Religion is an Island. Here again, he's playing with a theme from the Western tradition. I don't know if any of you identify. That's, that's a reference to John Donne, the English metaphysical poet, who writes his poem, No Man is an Island. He argues in this piece that any attempt to consider Judaism as if it exists in some splendid isolation from other religions is to misunderstand everything. Our era marks the end of complacency, the end of evasion, the end of self-reliance. Jews and Christians share the perils and the fears. We stand on the brink of the abyss together. Interdependence of political and economic conditions all over the world is a basic fact of our situation. I don't know if the name Reinhold Niebuhr will mean anything to you folks here. Niebuhr, a great Protestant theologian and social theorist, is one of Heschel's closest friends. Indeed, when Niebuhr dies, the eulogy is delivered by Heschel. 
They would walk a lot on Riverside Drive, if you're interested. I'm going to skip one or two of the pieces because I want to respect the time frame here. This piece that's dated 1944 actually has an even earlier provenance. He publishes it in this form towards the end of the war, but it begins its life, this essay, as a talk that he gave to a group of Quaker pacifists in Germany in 1938. And there's always a question with regards to Heschel, is he a pacifist, or what kind of pacifist was he? That subject always remains a little bit blurry. But listen to these statements. They're not very bellicose. Tanks and planes cannot redeem humanity. A man with a gun is like a beast without a gun. The killing of snakes will save us for the moment, but not forever. The war will outlast the victory of arms, if we fail to conquer the infamy of the soul, the indifference to crime when committed against others. For evil is indivisible. It is the same in thought and in speech, in private and in social life. I'm going to skip the sixth uh, source and move to number seven. This was published after Heschel had already died, and it's a very intriguing little essay in which he describes his motivation for becoming involved in the anti-war movement. And he tries to say, what was it that brought me in? There was nothing about Heschel's early life that could have led you to predict that he would be you know, singing We Shall Overcome and marching. There was no, he was in, kind of came from a different planet. So he says, what was it? There are a few reasons. One was the countless onslaughts upon my inner life, depriving me of the ability to sustain inner stillness. Heschel, it's not only I who was against the idea of being comfortable. Being comfortable is you're on the road to being asleep. Heschel described himself as the most maladjusted person I know and in another passage describes the prophet as being crucially, radically maladjusted. It's only the people who are maladjusted who can hold up a light, who can expose the ills of a society. The second event was the discovery that indifference to evil is worse than evil itself. Even the high worth of reflection in the cultivation of inner truth cannot justify remaining calm in the face of cruelties that make the hope of effectiveness of pure intellectual endeavors seem grotesque. The third event that changed my attitude was my study of the prophets of ancient Israel, a study on which I worked for several years until its publication in 1962. From them, the prophets, I learned the niggardliness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures. It became quite clear to me that while our eyes are witness to the callousness and cruelty of man, our heart tries to obliterate the memories, to calm the nerves, and to silence our conscience. And if you skip a couple of lines, Morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. It also became clear to me that in regard to cruelties committed in the name of a free society, 
Some are guilty while all are responsible. So Heschel is setting out here in these, and again, we're only doing very brief excerpts, a picture of the world in which God, if you want to use that terminology, is the call, the constant, relentless call not to close down, not to be blind, not to be numb. It's the constant call to celebrate and also to decry all the beautiful and wonderful things that are going on around us. I sometimes like to put it this way. From Heschel's perspective, when you wake up in the morning, there are two possible responses you may want to consider. Wow and oi. <laughs> there is ample justification for either. You, can, you want reasons? Put on the news. The question, however, is whether, how you can acknowledge, how you can face up both to the wow and to the oi. One of the remarkable things about Abraham Joshua Heschel is that he belies the usual dichotomy between people who are interested in spirituality on the one side and people who are interested in social activism on the other side. His activism is his spirituality and vice versa. He is responding to the oi and the wow at the same time. We're almost done. Our time is almost finished. Let's perhaps conclude with a telegram that Heschel penned. It, it, by the way, usually when I teach this to uh, our students, most of the time is spent explaining what's a telegram. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a telegram that is self-explanatory. To President John F. Kennedy, the White House, June 16, 1963. <laughs> I look forward to the privilege of being present at the meeting tomorrow at 4 p.m. The likelihood exists that the Negro problem will be like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declaration. We forfeit the right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. Church synagogues have failed. They must repent. Ask of religious leaders to call for national repentance and personal sacrifice. Let religious leaders donate one month's salary towards a fund for Negro housing and education. I propose that you, Mr. President, declare a state of moral emergency. A Marshall Plan for Aid to Negroes is becoming a necessity. The hour calls for high moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. Questions, comments, distress signals, signs of life before we close this uh, part up. And we get to play a game. We're going to pretend that you're actually submitting it by writing, and then oh. I'm going to repeat the question oh, for fine. the microphone. Excellent. It's going to feel like a talk show, even though you're all in the room right here. So you get to ask Michael anything, and I'm just going to repeat the question. Was Heschel at the March on Washington two months later? Was Heschel at Washington two months later after the telegram, you mean? Yes. I believe. Uh, oh, excuse me. 
The march on Washington, the I, the I Have a Dream, uh, I don't believe he was there. Uh, as you well know, uh, John, it was uh, Joachim Prince who got good billing from the Jewish perspective. He certainly did not speak that march on Washington. He was, I'm thinking of a march at, uh, at Arlington Cemetery. There were other marches in Washington, D.C. He was not, to the best of my knowledge, present at that famous I Have a Dream march on Washington. When you're teaching this to your students today, how are they responding to this? I, we're kind of responding. I, I'm feeling it around me. I can feel the physical response to your teaching tonight all around me. What is the response of your young students who are just entering Jewish professional life? What is the response of your younger students who are just entering professional life when they learn these teachings from you? Heschel continues to resonate very strongly with a certain portion of just about every generation since uh, in the decades that have elapsed. There are some people who find this kind of approach extremely compelling. There are others for whom it seems to be wildly romantic or it seems to be also problematic. You know, there are, it, it, it's kind of fascinating. Think about the, the debates that we, we have so often about the appropriate relationship between religion and state, or um, religion and politics. In an interview that Heschel gave shortly before his death, he was asked this. He said, you know, people, why are you so political? People don't want all this politics. Religion should be about religious stuff. And Heschel said, you know, you're absolutely right. He says, you know, those prophets of Israel, they were really not very religious. <laughs> he says, and you know what, now I think of it, God himself, clearly not religious, because what is God, as far as in the prophetic imagination, calling for? To clothe uh, the naked, to feed the hungry. All this involvement in politics, it's really very distasteful. In other words, it, Heschel's position is, there is no way to make the distinction. There's a lot of discussion today. What do you do with Heschel's approach in a post 9-11 world where people in the name of their religious conviction will do any number of heinous things? Wouldn't you want to cool people's religious ardor rather than stoke it up? So there's a kind of a, a challenge. My, my experience, to answer your direct question, is that for some people, this absolutely resonates. And for others, it's, it's not on their wavelength. We'll have two, two more questions. What was Heschel's relationship to Israel? What was Heschel's relationship to Israel? Heschel wrote a book about Israel in the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War called Israel, an Echo of Eternity. He had begun coming here, uh, here, there. I'm used to being there, excuse me, in the late 1950s. He had a complicated relationship with Israel, partly because this kind of prophetic critical stance didn't go down very well in Israel. In the, these days in Israel, we're all very, very laid back and very open to everybody's criticism, and uh, that's fine. But in those days, people were quite sensitive about this. So I'll give you an example of a Heschelian insight about Israel. He came in 1958, and he said, you know, I've spoken to young people on my visits to Israel who are in the army, and they tell me that in their army service, there's a rabbi who comes to check if the food they're given to eat is kosher. But they don't have a rabbi who comes to work with them and discuss with them whether the things they're required to do in the army, if they're kosher. 
the Israeli position was, you come here, you go in the army, you pay the price, then, I'm, then I can listen to these kind of uh, comments. But some smart aleck from uh, Riverside Drive, thank you very much, I'm not interested. So there was some kind of resistance. I'll tell you a fascinating thing. You asked about his approach to Israel. There has been a remarkable revival of interest in Heschel in Israel in the last five years. Heschel is being translated and published. It, it could be that Heschel's voice is, is, is needed in a way now and is resonating in a way now that it wasn't during our more glorious state-building years. Now Israel is in a phase of, in its uh, development <coughs> when the founding myths are in retreat and the question is what happens next? And he speaks to a certain way of melding tradition and modernity, religion and political engagement, and it's having more and more of a response in some corners, including, by the way, in, in orthodox sections of society, areas that really had eschewed him up until now. Yes, I was going to ask about the uh, Hitler years. The, I'm sorry? the Hitler years. What was Heschel's position during the Nazi years? He left Germany and left Europe before the final solution was activated. During the years of Nazi rule, he, for example, was given the mantle of the leading adult education initiative of the day, really the archetype for all adult education, Jewish adult education ever since, known as the Lehrhaus. It was based in Frankfurt. It had been established in the 20s by two great figures of German Jewish thought, Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig. When Buber leaves Germany and goes to Palestine in 1937, he says, take this on. Heschel is involved in spiritual resistance. I published an article a few years ago about little vignettes. He wrote in German for the leading circulation Jewish newspaper of the day, the Gemeindeblatt of the Jewish community in Berlin. He didn't write articles about, you know, be of good heart, no. He wrote portraits of sages from the period of the Mishnah. And each one of them is a little discussion of certain kind of responses to an extreme situation. So he writes about Rabbi Akiva, who becomes a revolutionary. And he writes about Elisha Ben Abuya, who loses his faith and allows cynicism and apostasy to overtake him. And he writes about Rabbi Chia, who, who leaves and goes elsewhere. He's writing about Jewish tradition but he's writing to the Jews of Nazi Germany saying, we've been here before. Let's find a language, if you like, a vocabulary so together we can go through this. So he wasn't a resistance leader from the movies, but he was part of what you might call the spiritual resistance of the Jewish community of those years. Please join me in thanking Rabbi Marmer for this wonderful talk. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.